I, I do a podcast. I'm not, I'm not interested in your podcast. Folks, these are, these are wolves. Truth be told, I, I oftentimes lay awake at night trying to figure out how I can get rid of wolves in the church. We are unabashedly, unashamedly Clarkian. And so the next few statements that I'm going to make, I'm probably going to step on all of the Vantillian toes at the same time. And this is what we do at Simple Reformanda Radio, you know. We are polemical and polarizing Jesus style. I would first say that to characterize what we do as fashion is itself fashion. It's not hate, it's history, it's not fashion, it's the Bible. Jesus said, Woe to you when men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way, as opposed to blessed are you when you have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. It is on. We're taking the gloves off. It's time to battle. All right. Welcome back to Semper Reformanda Radio. My name is Tim, and I am here with the other Tim. Uh, our expert in Roman Catholicism for another episode on Mother Mary. Uh, today we are going to be doing the fourth uh, part in this series on Mother Mary. I've titled it Roman Catholics and Their Queen. And uh, just for continuity's sake, there's part one, part two, part three, and this is going to be part four. So just to recap, in case you haven't heard all the episodes, the first episode, we just gave a basic overview of uh, Mother Mary and um and tackled the uh, the idea that she is uh, the queen. Um, the second episode, we tackled Mother Mary as the Ark of the New Covenant. Did I say that right, Brother Tim? Yes, yes, you did say that right. Because I know, I know. Uh, last uh, last time, I was I was saying it. Uh, I was saying it wrong. I was saying that she was the New Covenant. No. She's uh, the the Ark of the New Covenant, uh, and then last week, uh, last week was a really good one. We tackled the idea that Mother Mary is sinless, and so uh, today Tim uh, is pressed for time. So today we're just going to jump right in this. Um, but before I do that, let me just go ahead and play a commercial uh, for the network to let you guys know what other podcasts are on there, and so that you can check them out. This podcast is a member of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. All right, welcome everybody to another podcast episode with Semper Reformanda Radio. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. Welcome everyone to the Logical Belief Ministries podcast. Well, welcome to School of Biblical Hermeneutics. Welcome everybody to Grappling with Theology. What is going on, guys? Shine as lights coming at you. Well, welcome to Slick Answers. Good evening and welcome to Conversations from the port. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Bible Thumping Wingnut Podcast. <laughs> the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. Ten podcasts, one network. Check them out. BibleThumpingWingnut.com. All right. So, those are all the other podcasts that are on our network. Uh, I want to encourage everybody to check them out. Go to the website, make a profile, uh, friend request us. Uh, it, the, the website's very interactive. Check out the blogs. We we write blogs as well. But as I said, let's just go ahead and jump into today's topic. 
So Tim, what what are we going to be looking at with regards to Roman Catholicism and Mother Mary today? Okay, today what we're going to focus on is the perpetual virginity of Mary. And it's important for us to define what we mean by that. Um, uh, all people who claim to be Christians typically would agree that Mary was a virgin at Christ's conception, that she and she remained a virgin until Christ was born. And uh, the, the scriptural support for that is that you know, Matthew one eighteen, Luke one twenty seven to thirty four. These are the ones that talk about the the Old Testament prophesied that a virgin shall be with child. And Luke one twenty seven to thirty four is when the angel Gabriel visited with Mary, and announced that she was going to be having the Christ child. And she responded that How can this be? Since I do not know a man. So the 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 position from scriptures is that Mary was a virgin when she conceived. And as the scriptures also say later, you know, Joseph did not know her until after Christ was born. And so we know that she remained a virgin until Christ was born. Now, what's, what's important to understand about the Roman Catholic view of the virginity of Mary is that they believe that she was a virgin before Christ was born, and then remained a virgin throughout her whole life. And that is that she didn't have any other children. and then. Finally, that, and this is the one that we're really going to focus on today, is that she, that they believe that she remained a virgin during Christ's birth. That is, so there's prepartum, which is prior to Christ's birth, postpartum, which is after Christ's birth, and then there's the virginity in partu, which is during the delivery of Christ. And what's important to understand at this point is that Roman Catholics believe that when Mary delivered Christ, her physical virginity was not compromised. In other words, there was no uh, opening of the womb. There was no tearing of the flesh. Is that Jesus miraculously came out uh, completely uh, without compromising Mary's physical virginity. And we're going to really focus on that today because that's a very important part of our study on Mary. In this series yeah. is that we have to ask when did this idea come up that mary was uh, remained a virgin even in childbirth and what we'll find is that this this idea that she was she remained a virgin even in childbirth it actually comes from a second century document called the uh, proto-evangelium of james or the Proto-Gospel of James, and it is not canonical, and it's not apostolic. And in fact, I would suggest that it's even uh, Gnostic, because it actually has Jesus just coming through Mary in a flash of light and just showing up in her arms uh, without anything happening to Mary. And it's almost what we'll find is some of the early church writers uh, consider that to be a, a docetic or Gnostic position, and that is that this idea that Jesus was just a phantom, and this idea that he could uh, he could pass through Mary without compromising her virginity, uh, suggested the Gnostic position that he was just a phantom to begin with, and he never really took on a body. And when we get to Tertullian, we're going to have him arguing against the the position that Jesus was just a phantom by 
accentuating the fact that she did suffer in childbirth and there was tearing of the flesh when Christ was born because Christ's birth was perfectly natural. But so that's that's where we are. We're not going to focus a lot on prepartum because everybody's going to agree to that. Um, although there's there there are people out there that are, claim that well maybe Mary wasn't even a virgin prior to Christ's birth and prior to conception. But we won't go there. The, the scripture is very clear on this that Mary was a virgin when she conceived. So um, so what I wanted to focus on is that uh, although there are some writings from the second century that are not apostolic. Uh, this idea that Mary was a virgin uh, before, during, and after Christ's birth, the, the, whole pa- the whole package of perpetual ever-virginity, or they call Mary ever-virgin, that's what they mean by that. Uh, we, we would say Mary was a virgin, and Christ was born of the Virgin Mary, and, and we all know what we mean by that. Roman Catholics would refer to Mary and give her the title as ever-virgin, and that is that she was a virgin always at all times, before, during, and after the delivery of Christ. But what we find is that this does not become settled until the latter part of the 4th century. <laughs> and and we've, we've gone through this before with so many other Roman Catholic teachings, and today we're going to hit another one that it doesn't really resolve to a doctrine of the faith until the latter part of the 4th century, and when it does, it's based on these apocryphal documents that even Roman Catholic apologists acknowledge are not apostolic. Hmm. So, um, so we ready? We ready to go with uh, Mary's perpetual virginity? <laughs> yeah, let's jump into it. I'm, uh, <laughs> I, I'm just thinking. Um, you have already said some things that I didn't, I didn't know about um, the, the, the virginity. Uh, I guess with regards to when Christ was born. So. Um, yeah, I'm already learning a lot. Let's uh, let's just jump into it. Well, so so yeah, it's important to keep that in mind. Is that we we may find ourselves in agreement with Roman Catholics that Christ was born of a virgin, but what they mean by that is something different than what we mean by it. We believe that she she was a virgin all the way up until delivery, and then when she delivered Christ, it was perfectly normal, and Christ opened her womb. And and it was a perfectly she had childbirth pains just like everybody else and the, the, every other woman that's ever had a child, and uh, and it, it was a perfectly normal delivery. In fact, uh, what we find when we get to some of the early writers is that they considered that evidence, or their belief in that was because they believed Jesus came all the way down. <laughs> he didn't just come part way. Uh, he became he truly became a man and truly was born of a woman. And when we, we read some of the early writers, church fathers, they'll talk about uh, that his delivery through Mary was almost as painful as his death because he had to open her womb. And it was painful for him because he had to squeeze through. And, you know, oh, I, I've never I've never given birth to a child. I know that <laughs> my wife, her, her last child was without an epidural, and so she knows exactly what that's like. And, uh, and I know that when a child opens the womb, it really is a big deal for that child because he's the first one, first one through and uh, can really compress the skull, which is, uh, and when, when my son Tanner was born, he opened 
uh, he was the first to open my wife's womb and his head looked like a sausage when it came out because it was just, <laughs> I mean, just this is just what it's like. And so, yeah. so, and, and, you know, the early writers recognized this and what we'll find to our surprise is that they had to back off that, uh, some in the latter part of the fourth century had to change their story in a hurry. Once they realized that the, a new doctrine had come up that Mary was a virgin, even, uh, in part two. Right. So, so I, I want to give an example. This is what you you typically find, and, and I find this a lot with uh, Roman Catholic apologists. Is they'll always talk about well, yes, this has always been taught by the Church. Why, as recently as the late fourth century, we have this X, Y, and Z, and we find this. Uh, there's a, an outfit called Biblical Catholic Apologetics, and uh, in their article on Mary. Uh, virgin and ever virgin, they have this statement under the subtitle, The Constant Faith of the Church. And this is the statement. Great teachers of the church from at least the fourth century spoke of Mary as having remained a virgin throughout her life. And I think that's, it, it's almost comical when you realize how often Roman Catholics have to make that point. Why as recently as the late fourth century, this, that, or the other and, and this is just one more thing. It's one more novelty from the latter part of the fourth century that Roman Catholics have tried to purvey upon the world as an apostolic doctrine. But if you can't trace it back earlier than the latter part of the fourth century, then not only is it not apostolic, but it's also uh, misleading to say it was the constant faith of the church. And what we'll find as we go through is that it was not the constant faith of the church. And uh, and I'll, just to give you some examples, uh, this uh, biblical Catholic apologetics page says, well, well look, we have Athanasius, uh, Epiphanius, Jerome, Augustine, and Cyril of uh, Alexandria. Well, all of these are from the late fourth century. <laughs> you know, uh, that, that that's their evidence for Mary being a virgin prepartum, in partu, and postpartum. And, and even then you'll find that not all of them agreed that Mary remained a virgin in part two. It's a very, I mean, among the Roman Catholic teachings that are allegedly apostolic, this is one of the most, uh, you know, confounded and confused and torturous uh, tra <laughs> you know, uh, arguments that they make because everybody they turn to in some way disagrees with what the actual doctrine is. So, so, so now, now in some some web pages, you're going to come across people say, "Well, Irenaeus believed in the perpetual virginity of Mary," and and I want to return now, and it's very important that we we draw on established Roman Catholic experts in Mariology to talk about what they themselves have acknowledged. You remember last week when we talked about the Immaculate Conception, uh, we drew on uh, Juniper Carroll and. Um, and also Olathorne as well, both were very well-respected Roman Catholic Mariologists, and they would agree that there's no real solid evidence for Mary's immaculacy or sinlessness until the latter part of the fourth century. In fact, they'd say that 377 AD was a turning point in the West where Ambrose had introduced a novelty, but it lasts, you know, so they, they said, well, we can trace it to Ambrose, and therefore it must not have been new. Uh, and the same thing here is that, well, we can trace this to the latter part of the fourth century, and therefore it must be apostolic. And that's a huge logical leap. And it's one that often uh, even educated evangelicals will fall for, say, wow, if the, if we can trace it to the latter part of the fourth century, it must be true. Well, I would say, to the contrary, if you can only trace it to the latter part of the fourth century, then it's a novelty and it's not apostolic. So, um, but uh, Juniper Carroll 
when he is writing on the patristic tradition concerning Mary's virginity. He says, according to those authentic writings of his, which have come down to us, there is nothing in these translated passages to show that Irenaeus held the permanence of Mary's virginity. So here you have a, a Roman Catholic Mary, Mariologist, a scholar in Mariology, and he's saying, you know what? I know some people are out there saying that uh, you know, Irenaeus, who died in 202 AD, so he's really a second century, early third century scholar, a uh, patristic writer. Um, he's, Juniper Carroll says, you know what? We've looked at this and we just don't find anything compelling in Irenaeus to say that he held to uh, Mary's perpetual virginity. So there were some, there's some who say that Origen, and he's also uh, second century, mid third century, so I, I would guess that his writings are all from really the third century since he was born in 185. Um, but he has been brought forth as evidence that Mary didn't have any other children after Jesus. And what's interesting here is that he draws on apocryphal works. And apocryphal are basically works that are, are not received in the canon of the scriptures, are not recognized by anybody as canonical, and they are... In this case, we're talking about the, the gospel according to Peter and the Proto-Evangelium of James. And, and this is something that's very interesting. Uh, this is Origen in his commentary on Matthew, book 10, chapter 17. And he appeals to the gospel according to Peter and the book of James or the Proto-Evangelium of James to support the theory that the brethren of Jesus were actually sons of Joseph by a former marriage. And the story here is that um, that Mary was a consecrated virgin, that she had pledged herself to virginity from an early age, and she knew that she was not going to marry and was not going to know a man. And so Roman Catholics sometimes will fall back on this to say that when Mary said to Gabriel, how can this be since I do not know a man, into um, her vow of celibacy is third century and he says but some say basing it on a tradition in the gospel according to peter as it is entitled or the book of james that the brethren of jesus were sons of joseph by a former wife whom he married before mary and um and he he says that uh you know origins of, well i think this is in harmony with reason and he, see, he says well uh it doesn't make sense to me that uh that Mary would know intercourse with a man after the Holy Ghost came into her. That is, the Holy Ghost had, you know, basically become espoused to her, and therefore she's she's taken, you know, from uh, she's off the market. In other words, so it just makes sense that she wouldn't have another, uh, uh, that she wouldn't actually be married and know a man, and and you know. Uh, or just well, it, you know, this seems in harmony with reason, but he's still just appealing to tradition and not to recognize scriptures. But we're going to come back to the Proto-Evangelium of James a little bit later because uh, Juniper Carroll has some things to say about it. Um, but what I want to highlight is that Origen did not believe that Mary's virginity was preserved in childbirth. So even if we have Origen even giving credence and, and whatever, the words he actually says in his commentary on Matthew are not really, uh, uh, really, you know, emphatic praise of these sources. He just says, well, there's some people that say this, and it seems to me reasonable, but he doesn't seem, he doesn't convey to this, this as if it's 
some received apostolic doctrine. He just says, well, hmm, I thought about it and it seems to make sense. But no sense that he'd actually received this as an apostolic truth. But later in another work, and this is his homilies on Luke, homily 14, paragraph 7 to 8, he actually says that Jesus' birth was normal. And that yeah. in the case, and he says, in the case of every other woman, it is not the birth of an infant, but intercourse with a man that opens the womb. But the womb of the Lord's mother was opened at the time when her offspring was brought forth. So he's here Origen is saying that what normally would happen to a virgin on her wedding night is what happened to Mary when Christ was born. So he's actually here Origen is saying that Mary's virginity was compromised in delivery. So even if he believed that maybe Mary didn't have other uh, didn't have sex after Christ was born, he still believed that his birth was normal and that Mary's womb was opened by his delivery. And that's the very thing that Roman Catholics deny. They would say that her virginity was preserved in partu. But what's interesting to go back to Juniper Carroll regarding the Gospel of Peter and the Proto-Evangelium of James, this is what he says. He says, whatever their origins, we have no grounds for concluding that the Apocrypha contained and transmitted an authentic apostolic tradition concerning the dogma of Mary's perpetual virginity. In each instance, such a tradition would have to be established, an impossible task with our present documentary sources. Moreover, in themselves, the apocryphal narratives scarcely measure up to the quality of sober objectivity characteristic of the transmission of a doctrine that is authentically apostolic in origin. So, <laughs> so, so now keep in mind that this is Juniper Carroll, who is, you know, the preeminent Mariologist of Roman Catholicism. He said, listen, I know that origin appealed to them, but there's nothing in them that could even be stretched to the level of apostolicity. And therefore, we just simply can't look at that and, and assume that they had transmitted an apostolic doctrine. And what's more, Origen didn't believe that Mary was a virgin in partu. And Roman Catholic doctrine requires all three, prepartum, in partu, and postpartum. So do you see how, you know, as much as people would love to find some evidence, as much as Roman Catholics would love to find evidence of this before Nicaea, they really don't find evidence of the doctrine taking hold until the latter part of the fourth century. And what you find is an, uh, an amalgamation of all these different writers who had different views on it. And, uh, or, or if they had a view that, say, Mary was uh, a virgin in partu, and we're going to get to Clement of Alexandria in a second, what we'll find is that the text is compromised and we don't really have any uh, evidence that we, we aren't really sure that this is something that Clement wrote, but, but so, so you with me so far? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm going along with you on your notes. I see that you're on number two now and I know that you're pressed for time. So folks, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna sit back today and let, uh, let Tim run the show. Um, but you know, I'll, I'll just make this one comment. You said that they, they can't find any evidence, uh, to support their claims prior to the fourth century, but what it sounds like you're saying, and what we're going to continue to show, is that there's actually uh, evidence to the contrary. So it's not just that, hey, they can't go past the, they can't go further back than the fourth century. It's that when you do go back further than the fourth century, you find all these individuals saying the exact opposite of what they want them to say. And uh, so, yeah, that, that's right. 
and, and you find this consistently when we covered when we did our series on the sacrifice of the mass is that what we found prior to the latter part of the fourth century is that when 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 they talked about bread and wine being offered it was in the context of philippians 418 where when we provide we meet the needs of the fellow saints with the bread and wine that people have brought together as the tithe or the, to bring to the church the, with with such sacrifices, the Lord is well pleased. That's what Paul wrote in Philippians four eighteen. But you don't get the sense that they were actually turning the bread and, and wine into the body and blood of Christ, and then sacrificing Christ's body and blood to God. Right. Right? Not not until the latter part of the fourth century, with the Immaculate Conception, you have these people talking about the sin sinfulness of Mary, and and the Catholic Encyclopedia just writes that off as, well, that's just stray private opinion, but it was the constant faith of the church that the Pius IX said in his infallible proclamation. And what we find is the very opposite is what we find in the early churches that thought that Mary was sinful. And here what we're finding is that there, there was no sense that Mary, no apostolic sense that Mary was uh, both uh, a virgin in childbirth and afterward. Right. In, in other words, there's no sense that she was an ever virgin, which is a very late development. So one, one piece of evidence that they would use is Clement of Alexandria. And so Clement of Alexandria, uh, this is from uh, Clement of Alexandria. This is from the Stromata book seven, chapter 16. And, and here, here's what he writes. It says, but as appears, many even down to our own time regard Mary on account of the birth of her child as having been in the purpural state, that is the state of, of, of um, childbirth that involves the pain and the travail. Um, although she was not, that's, that's what he says, although she was not. For some say that after she brought forth, she was found when examined to be a virgin. Okay, so, so this is Clement of Alexandria, and uh, it's possible that he's referring to the Proto-Evangelium of James. Now, this is what's interesting. Juniper Carroll again, referring to this particular citation from Clement of Alexandria. It says, uh, the problem is that the citation of Clement of Alexandria on her perpetual virginity comes from an unreliable source. He says, we cannot absolutely rely on this text since it is a sixth century translated adaptation into Latin by Cassiodorus with the expressed intention of expurgating, uh, expurgating anything that might be offensive. In other words, this is from the 6th century. It's a translation of Clement's works. And the author explicitly states that he's expurgating anything that might be considered offensive. So we can't really know. I mean, this is a Latin adaptation, three centuries removed from Clement of Alexandria. And so we don't even have evidence that this is really a reliable source. So again, with Roman Catholics, it's often... Well, we, we don't know for sure who wrote this, or we don't know when it was written, or like we talked about last week when um, Steve Ray actually put Hesius of Jerusalem in 300, uh, but 300 AD, and it turns out the Catholic Encyclopedia says we really don't know much about him, but he's probably from the 5th century. <laughs> well, you keep on finding this questionable data from Roman Catholics, and they're, 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 their goal is to get us to overlook a 300-year gap between the apostles and their teachings. Right. Uh, sorry, between the apostles and Roman Catholic teachings. Right. And, and, and many Roman Catholics fall for this, and we've talked about this on our many different ep uh, podcasts, that too many Protestants and evangelicals are willing to just grant to Roman Catholicism that 300-year assumption. Say, if it was taught in the latter part of the 4th century, 
then there, that must have been something that was continuous from the apostles. Whereas there's another option. That other option is that this is a novelty and the early church did not agree with it. So another example is that, you know, people will appeal to the Nicene Creed because uh, the Nicene Creed would refer to uh, Christ was born of Mary, ever virgin. Okay, so the Nicene Creed is 320. The Nicene uh, Council was from 325 AD. Well, the problem is that the original council made no mention of Mary being ever virgin, that is a continuously a virgin in all, all phases of life. And that's not really until like Second Constantinople, the Second Council of Constantinople in the sixth century, when we start seeing uh, Mary ever virgin being used in the councils. And so the Nicene Creed that states uh, Christ was born of Mary ever virgin is actually uh, late fourth century or even uh, uh, early uh, early fifth century. It's not something that came from the Nicene Council. Uh, some folks folks would also say, well, uh, Athanasius was at Nicaea and he used the term ever virgin. Well, it's true that Athanasius used the term ever virgin, but he does not use that until 360 AD in his discourses against the Arians. That's discourse two, chapter 70. Again, late fourth century. Have you noticed that no matter how hard they try, they always end up in the late fourth century. And they might say, well, Athanasius believed it. And I say, I don't care. Athanasius isn't enough <laughs> to persuade me. You know? yeah. What yeah. matters is, it, is it true? Is it true? And is it uh, apostolic? Just because Athanasius believed it doesn't matter to me. That, that response is gold. Oh, well, I don't care. <laughs> um, yeah. That's, yeah, that's stop, good. Yeah. Stop trying to, to, to you know, I'm, I'm pulling back the curtain saying, look, the early church didn't agree with this. And they're saying, but late fourth century, late fourth century. Come on. That's that you got to give us the give us the last 300 years. OK, we can get you to the late fourth century working backwards from now. And you just have to give us the last 300 years. I'm not going to. The early right. church didn't agree with this nonsense. And Roman Catholics have been trying to, you know, trying to fool people. Say, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. And just accept that this must be true, because if we can trace it back to the latter part of the fourth century, then it must be true. And, and where they trace it back further, it's from uh, the, the Proto-Evangelium of James, second century. And the reason I would, uh, although it's, it's not typically classified as a docetic or Gnostic document, that docetism comes from the Greek word for phantom, where there was a heresy that Jesus had not actually taken flesh but he had actually come into the world as a phantom and that is a ghost or a spirit that never actually had a body. And, and if you remember in our discussion on the sacrifice of the mass, the, the early church, they looked at the bread and the wine. The, the, they said Jesus would never have used elements of this earth, like mm. the bread and the wine, as a figure for his body unless there had truly been a body. Right? So they used the elements to say, wow, he said, this is my body. He must have really become flesh and blood like us. They didn't look at it and say, oh, he really meant this is my body. And, and so what you find in the early church is that you have the early writers arguing against the Gnostics and the Docetists, saying Jesus really took on flesh. He really took on a body. That's why he said, this is my body. This is my blood. And, and, and that Mary really did have childbirth pains because we know Jesus really had a body. And therefore, to come through Mary, he must have had she must have had childbirth pains because Jesus had a body. Now, what um, I want to now turn to Roman Catholic apologist James Aiken. 
because he's got a video on YouTube, and I would recommend that people watch this. It's only three minutes long, but it's very telling. It's um, it's it's called "How Did the Church Fathers Explain the Perpetual Virginity of Mary?" And uh, if you just if you just type in James Aiken Catholic Answers Perpetual Virginity of Mary, you'll come across a YouTube video. Like I said, it's just a little bit more than three minutes long, and he says, "Okay." We have two sources. One is the apocryphal Proto-Evangelium of James, 2nd century, probably about 150 AD. And that's the one that says uh, Joseph became a guardian of Mary, who was a, a consecrated virgin, and that the brethren of Christ were from uh, Joseph's previous marriage. So Joseph had been married before, and he just took on Mary. Is uh, more like uh, he was a caretaker. Uh, he was just a custodian, in other words. And Mary was the consecrated virgin, and then uh, Joseph just took her on as a in, into his custody to care for her. And as the story goes on, uh, there's a when when Joseph brings Mary to Jerusalem to give birth, um, there's a flash of light, and next thing you know, Mary is holding Jesus in her arms, and he's taking her breast and 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 beginning to nurse, and and it's just well, there you go. <laughs> uh, Mary's virginity was preserved in part to you. It says it right there in the Proto-Evangelium of James. In fact, uh, in the story, uh, and people can look this up online. It's very easy to find. If you just search for the uh, Proto-Gospel of James or Proto-Evangelium of James, you'll find it. Uh, but it's it's just not written in a sense that is credible, and it certainly isn't apostolic. But it, it turns out that the, um, the, the midwife is there as well. She's not there in the scriptural narratives, but she is in this one. And, she doesn't believe it. She goes and checks. And then uh, because the midwife checks Mary to, ver to verify that she's still a virgin, her hand uh, then withers and she, she has to pray to God uh, to repent because she questions the holiness of Mary. And it's, just, it's, all, it's all silly nonsense. And yet this is what James Aiken, the Roman Catholic apologist, is using. Is Well, we have the Proto-Evangelium of James, okay? Then he says, but we also have Jerome from the late 4th century, okay? And Jerome took a different view. He said the brethren of Christ are not uh, stepbrothers and sisters, but they're actually cousins. They're not actual brothers. They're just cousins. Mm -hmm. uh, they're, 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 they're near relations, but they're not brethren by Mary. Well, hey, Tim. Yeah. Let me, uh, before you get into that, I just have one real quick question. Hopefully it won't complicate things too much, sure. but uh, just, just for the sake of clarity, when you say the Proto-Evangelium of James and uh, you're, you're talking about the Apocrypha, uh, real quick, you, that, would, that would mean that these books are included in the Roman Catholic Bible. Is that, is that correct? No, no. See, these are, these are uh, th there's, an, uh, there's an Apocrypha like uh, first and second Maccabees and that sort of thing that is included. Right. right. And that's, that's what I'm yeah. thinking about. Um, right. So this but is different. There are books that, yeah. That, that are apocryphal that even oh. Roman Catholics would agree that they're not in the Bible. So, okay. Okay. So, okay. All right. Right. So, so the gospel of James and the gospel of Peter, uh, Roman Catholics do not regard them as scripture either. And, and so, as you can see, they're stretching quite a bit to get to. <laughs> they're stretching teaching. a lot. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, tremendously. So, so what's interesting is that uh, James Aiken gives us two possible sources for the antiquity of this doctrine. The first is the Proto-Evangelium of James that even Roman Catholics agree is not scriptural. They say, well, 
But the idea was there, and that shows you something. I said, well, it, does, it just shows me the idea was there. There's also other ideas that Jesus did not take on a body. Um, but what's really interesting, what we find is that by the time we get, by the time we get to uh, uh, Jerome, who believed originally that Jesus' birth was perfectly normal, he eventually changes his tune and starts adopting uh, a view more consistent with the Proto-Evangelium of, of James. Um, but we'll, we'll get to Jerome in just a second, but, uh, uh, but at least his, his turn from one position to another. But what's interesting about when uh, James Aiken gives us two possibilities, he says there's the Proto-Evangelium of James from the second century, and then there's Jerome, who had the theory that Christ's brethren in the scriptures are actually cousins and not actual brothers. The problem is, and this is from 383 AD, this is late fourth century, um, Jerome utterly ridiculed the view from the Proto-Evangelium of James. He thought that was, here's what he said. This is his, uh, his, his, his letter against Helvidius, paragraph 19. He says, if we adopt possibility as the standard of judgment, we might maintain that Joseph had several wives because Abraham had, and so had Jacob, and that the Lord's brethren were the issue of those wives, an invention which some hold with rashness, which springs from audacity, not from piety. So, so here we have, he, he says, okay, if, if we're really, if, if our standard of truth is so low that we're going to accept possibility as a standard of judgment, then yes, we can accept that Joseph had other wives because, and that's what that's what it is said explicitly in the in the Proto Gospel of James that, well, the, the children of uh, the brethren of Jesus are actually sons of Joseph from a prior marriage, but uh, but he he ridicules it. He says, well, that's an invention, hmm. which which some hold with rashness, which springs from audacity, not from piety. So the two options were given by James Aiken is one something that even the Roman Catholic scholars admit is not apostolic. And the other option is Jerome, who actually ridicules the Proto-Evangelium of James. But, but Jerome did something more than that. He said, I'm going to go even further. I'm going to say, and the reason that he did not want to accept that Joseph had wives, a, a previous wife before Mary, is that he wants to maintain, and this too is a novelty from the late 4th century, he wanted to maintain that Joseph himself was a virgin, so that Christ, the virgin Savior, was born of a virgin mother and a virgin father, and uh, so they had a virgin family. And uh, this is something that, uh, that became very significant in the latter part of the 4th century, where the, the, the idea of consecrated virginity as uh, as an apostolic doctrine also began to take root. It's not an apostolic doctrine. The scriptures do say that there are those who uh, do not get married, and there are some that are eunuchs for the kingdom of God, as Jesus said. But this idea of uh, uh, by getting uh, consecrated as a virgin, you're actually they actually had wedding ceremonies where the virgin would betroth herself to Christ, and. Uh, that was a, that's a novelty the latter part of the fourth century, and it was Ambrose who actually formalized that and made it uh, a practice of the church. But uh, but that's something that Jerome had stumbled into as well, and so he began to see. Uh, you know, he, he even saw you know in a moment of weakness, I would say, Jerome even said that John would have been a better chief apostle than Peter because <laughs> John, 
John was a virgin, you know. So, but anyway, so I don't want to get off track. <laughs> well, I, I don't, I don't want to get off track either. You're, you're just, you said that they would have like around this time that they would have weddings and oh yes, yes, yes. The when the when the, the, the the bride would 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 basically vow to stay a virgin throughout the whole marriage. Oh, okay. So there's there's two different issues there. One is if someone decides that they want to be a virgin their whole life, that they would have a wedding ceremony that was very it was very much like a wedding ceremony, except she would betroth herself oh, to Christ, right? Okay. So, right. but there there's another kind of virginity that became popular at this time as well, and that is uh, a virginity in marriage, and we can cover that in another. Yeah, yeah. Another no, podcast. we can't get into that now. That's just bizarre. Um, yeah. So obviously, virginity was a, a form of piety, right? That's, right, and, yeah, and you know, okay. nobody denies that celibacy is a form of piety. Right, it's just that I wouldn't create the hierarchy that they did. That uh, that virginity <laughs> is the highest state. Uh, marital virginity is the uh, actually I'd say virginity is the highest state. Then widowhood is the next one down. The next one below that is being married but abstaining, and then the lowest. The lowest on the totem pole of of meritorious uh, uh, acts is to to actually be a, a husband and wife engaged in conjugal union, uh, raising children, and that sort of thing. Hmm. That's a that's that, the whole issue with how uh, virginity uh, became <laughs> such a fascination of these writers in the latter part of the fourth century that they just almost couldn't focus on anything else. It's just fascinating. Right. But, uh, okay. We can get into to another episode, but what's it's just interesting here that, yeah, that, uh, that Jerome had is so I'm going to go even further than you. I'm going to say that Joseph was a virgin too, and he remained a virgin his whole life. So that we, the Holy family is the virgin mother, virgin father, and virgin child, because, uh, you know, it, 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 it just goes on and on with how Jerome invented so much. And this is just one more novelty of Jerome. And, and he insisted, he said, hey, um, marriage uh, was a product of the fall. Uh, Adam and Eve didn't get married until after they were kicked out of the garden. And, and uh, this is all, it, it's all, it's all just nonsense. And it was Jerome just had these ideas and just began, just began to gush them forth and everybody bought into them. I would say everybody, there were obviously some people that rejected them. We let the, that's a matter for another podcast as well. But but what's interesting here is in, in his work against Helvidius, paragraph 19, um, uh, Jerome believed that he had the support of the early church. And he was conveying this idea that the brethren of the Lord were not sons of Mary, but brethren in the sense of being uh, in point of kinship not by nature, that is, you know, being cousins or relatives. And he says, he says to Helvidius, might I not array against you the whole series of ancient writers, Ignatius, Polycarp, Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, and many other apostolic and eloquent men uh, who held these same views and wrote volumes replete with wisdom? If you had ever read what they wrote, you would be a wiser man. Well, here's the problem. We just heard from Juniper Carroll, who is you know, the, 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 the Mariologists, Mariologists in Roman Catholicism. And he says, you know what? I'm sorry, we're just not finding it in Irenaeus. We don't have any evidence that he held to the perpetual virginity. And importantly, uh, Ignatius, Polycarp, Justin Martyr, there's nothing in any of their works that are existent that have anything uh, 
that say anything about this. And what's interesting about this, and having read Jerome a good bit, is he has a very creative memory. <laughs> and he is just notoriously um, terrible at church history. And he and Ambrose suffer from the same thing. You know, in Ambrose letter 63, he talked about how the Council of Nicaea had forbidden second marriages for clergy. And if you go back and look at the um, look at the canons of the Council of Nicaea, they actually were saying that um, they were going to welcome some people who had been uh, apart from the church. They were welcomed back in, and they were just going to have to accept the fact that they would be ministering with people who were in their second marriage. I mean, that's that's the, that's all that Nicaea said about second marriages is that back we're just going to have to accept the fact that some people were on their second marriage. And Ambrose just out of nowhere just decides that forbidden second marriages for clergy. There's just nothing there. And uh, in other articles uh, on, say, on Jerome, I've written about Jerome as he said, you know, unless I'm deceived, the Council of Nicaea gave to Antioch the whole diocese of Oriens. And he's just dead wrong historically and geographically. In fact, Antioch and Alexandria were both located in the civil diocese of Oriens at the time of the council. And, their, and, and the whole disagreement that they were resolving by determining the boundaries of the bishops of Antioch and Alexandria is they both were inside the same civil diocese. And so they had to establish boundaries for each bishop within a diocese. And, 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 and Jerome just says, well, unless I'm deceived, the council gave the entire diocese of Oriens to Antioch. Well, he's just, like I said, these guys are just notoriously terrible at church history. And, and what's more, they just invent things and then impose them on people as if they're apostolic. So the first problem with Jerome uh, in his writing against Helvidius, as I was saying, the, the man that he brings up from church history didn't say anything about what he's talking about. But the other problem is, and here in his moment of weakness, Jerome acknowledged that Jesus' birth was perfectly normal. This is from 383. So Helvidius had written, he says, are we bound? This is Helvidius who's criticizing Jerome's position on Jerome's, he's criticizing Jerome's position on other children of Mary. Okay. He says, are we bound to blush at the thought of Mary having a husband after she was delivered? If they, that is the people of Jerome's position, if they find any disgrace in this, they ought not consistently believe even that God was born of the Virgin Mary by natural delivery. He's, he's basically saying, if, if her womb was opened in natural delivery, what's the shame in her having a husband hmm. after Christ was born? And here's where Jerome responded, and he says something that is he's going to have to undo later. He never actually retracts this because he was too proud, but he simply changes his position and acts as if that's the one he'd always had. <laughs> He responds to Helvidius and he said, if you like Helvidius, the other humiliations of nature, the womb for nine months growing larger, the sickness, the delivery, the blood, the swaddling clothes, we do not blush. We are not put to silence by these. So this is Jerome in against Helvidius, paragraph 20, conceding that, hey, you're not going to shame, you're not going to shame me into thinking that Mary had a husband after Christ was born based on the natural delivery. He says, hey, we don't blush at that. Mary, you know, the sickness, the delivery, the blood, the swaddling clothes. And here he is basically acknowledging that, yeah, the birth was natural, but that doesn't necessarily mean she had a husband later. Okay, 
So what's interesting is that he didn't seem to think, because he, here he was making the point that it's obvious an apostolic truth that the sons of Joseph, uh, or I'm sorry, the sons, the brethren of Jesus are actually cousins. He seems to be passing that off as an apostolic truth, criticizing Helvidius for being so stupid. And yet he actually concedes that Mary did not remain a virgin in partu. So Jerome isn't really a big help. To go back to James Aiken, he's appealing first to an apocryphal document that even a, a Mariologist would acknowledge doesn't really convey any apostolic truth. And then he also offers Jerome, but when Jerome defends his position that there, the, the idea that the children, the brethren of Christ were actually cousins, Jerome accidentally spills the beans on Mary's natural delivery and doesn't really hold to the idea that she was uh, a virgin in part two. Now, now, 10 years later, in his letter to Pomachius, what, what happened was Pomachius was a friend of Jerome, and Pomachius had en encountered a man named Jovinianus. And Jovinianus had maintained, apparently, that Mary's birth was completely natural. Pomachius had made Jovinianus's uh, writings available to Jerome, and here Jerome changes his tune. And he says, and now he's going, now he's following, he's falling back on the Proto-Evangelium of James. And he says, let my critics explain to me how Jesus can have entered in through closed doors when he allowed his hands and his side to be handled, that is after the resurrection, and showed that he had bones and flesh, thus proving that he has a, he, that his was a true body and no mere phantom of one. So basically, let my critics explain how he can go through closed doors uh, when he has a real body. And I will explain how Holy Mary can be at once a mother and a virgin. A mother before she was wedded, she remained a virgin after bearing her son. So she, he's basically changed his position to talk about how Jesus with flesh and blood passed through Mary's womb without compromising her physical virginity in just the same way Jesus' resurrected body came through the doors. Mm. But we're talking about two different things here. So one is Jesus becoming a man like us. And when he conquers death, he rises and he has not yet ascended to his father. But Jesus was able to do those kind of miracles. And we know that that Jesus specifically, and John specifically tells us in, in John chapter 2, that his turning water into the wine was the beginning of his miracles. Okay? Right. Yeah. The gospel tells us that he didn't do any miracles until then. And so for him to conduct this miracle of passing through Mary without compromising her physical virginity would move his miracles up by about 27 years. Right. So, so but what's interesting is that Jerome has switched positions in about 10 years and in and, and, and 393 A.D., he's saying that Mary passed through, uh, I'm sorry, Jesus passed through Mary's womb without compromising her physical virginity. But just 10 years earlier, he was ridiculing um, Hel Helvidius, and, but also ridiculing the Proto-Evangelium of James. It said that Jesus passed through Mary's womb without compromising her physical virginity. <laughs> but but so, so what was happening in the latter part of the 4th century was suddenly this was all the rage. And what's really interesting... Um, that, that it became, it just became something that was just very, very popular. And we have to remember that 
popularity in the latter part of the fourth century or the sudden eruption of teaching at the latter part of the fourth century does not make an apostolic doctrine. And all the arguments we're hearing from Roman Catholics are, trust us on this. If you just give us those last 300 years, we can get this back to the apostles. <laughs> <laughs> but, but this is the problem. The, their whole religion is based on novelties that erupted at the latter part of the fourth century. And, and as I've noted, that even Roman Catholic scholars recognize that this is a novelty. So I want to go uh, to David Hunter now. And David Hunter was previously the Monsignor James Supple Chair of Catholic Studies at Iowa State University. And he is currently the Cottrell Rolfs Chair of Catholic Studies at University of Kentucky. So, so he's been the Chair of Catholic Studies at two different universities. So obviously we're not talking about an uneducated Ethan here. This is a this is a guy who's well studied. He's he, he's familiar with the teachings of the early church, and he recognizes the same thing that uh, Juniper Carroll did. Remember, Juniper Carroll went back and looked and said, "You know, I know that Pius the Ninth says that the whole church since the days of the apostles have been teaching that Mary was sinless, but yet when it comes down to it, we don't really find a turning point in the in the church's Mariology until 377 A.D." where it begins to be taught that Mary was sinless. Well, David Hunter realizes the same thing, having studied all this. And this is from his book about the Jovinian controversy, is that he was studying uh, marriage, celibacy, and heresy in, the, in ancient Christianity. And he, was, uh, he had written a book on Jovinianus and his confrontation with Jerome. And what's really interesting, this is from a Roman Catholic scholar, and he says, if there is a single conclusion to be derived from my study, it is that Jovinian stood much closer to the center of Christian tradition than previous critics have recognized. And then he, he, he says something very transparent here, here, and he says, I realize that by saying Jovinianus stood closer to the center of Christian tradition, that I am acknowledging at the same time that his critics stood farther from the center of Christian tradition, and his critics were Ambrose and Jerome. Hmm. And he says this specifically of Ambrose. He said, Ambrose's attraction to the ideal of virgin, virginal integrity caused him to adopt a Marian doctrine, virginitas in partu, that had only a fragile basis in earlier Christian tradition. And Jovinianus, and, and so that's, that's the end of his quote. I, uh, this, is, this is me talking now, but Remember, Jovinianus had criticized Jerome for saying that Mary had remained a virgin in partu. Right. And here, David Hunter says, you know what? When I study Jovinianus, I realized that he stood closer to the center of Christian tradition than Ambrose and Jerome did. And Jerome's ideal of virginal integrity caused him to adopt a Marian doctrine that had only a fragile basis in earlier Christian tradition. Do you know what that fragile basis was? It was the Proto-Evangelium of James. <laughs> you know, it was the apocryphal book that Juniper Carroll acknowledged was not apostolic. And what, what David Hunter had done here is he acknowledged that Jovinianus was actually closer to apostolic truth than Ambrose and Jerome. And that just like when we talked about Juniper Carroll acknowledged that Ambrose's view of Mary as immaculate and sinless was a novelty of the late fourth century, so was the teaching that it was that it was this idea that it was an apostolic truth that Mary was a virgin, prepartum, in partu, and postpartum. 
that too was a novelty of the later fourth century that was relegated to the stuff of Gnostics and apocryphal documents up until this point. Mm. So again, we have this, it's just one more brick in this wall that we're building to show that the Roman Catholic religion as a whole started in the late fourth century and its claims to apostolicity are 300 years shy of the apostles. So much of what they've taught and claimed is not only novelty the late fourth century, but explicitly denied by the earlier church. So what I wanted to do now is go through some of those early church fathers that, that explicitly state that they did not believe that Mary remained a virgin in childbirth. So let's do it. You ready for that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I know that this is a bit of a fire hose, but, but what the encouragement I have to our listeners is listen, there, there have been some very well-educated evangelicals who have fallen for the nonsense and converted to Roman Catholicism. And they've granted to Rome those last 300 years. Yeah. If they can trace, they say, if we can trace back to the latter part of the fourth century, I'm going to grant you the last 300 years. I have some advice for you. Don't give those 300 years away. Because in those 300 years, we have people who recognize the truth, right. taught things that are completely inimical to Roman Catholicism. Right. You, you so, know, you said, uh, you said right now that this is like a fire hose and, uh, the image that I've had in my mind is uh, you, you're not, you're not just like swatting a fly with a fly swatter. You're taking a shotgun to it. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, well, you know, here's, the, you, know, it, <clears throat> you know, it's the statements like it's the statements like James Aiken, who can't really come up with a consistent story on the apostolicity of perpetual virginity for Mary. So he says, but I'm going to give you a couple things. You could, This is what we've got. He's basically throwing his hands up, a lot of arm waving. Hey, we don't have a lot, but what I do, we do have, we'll give to you. <laughs> One of them is the Proto-Evangelium of James that is not apostolic. And then we have Jerome, who criticized the Proto-Evangelium of James and also conceded originally <laughs> that Mary's birth, Christ's birth was completely yeah. natural. So we've already covered um, Origen because we talked about how Origen, even though he was open to entertaining the possibility that Mary didn't have other children, he still thought that uh, Christ had opened Mary's womb, the way a, uh, in a regular marriage, uh, Christ, uh, the husband, would open the the, the wife of the womb, uh, the womb of the wife. So he says, remember, it is not the birth of an infant, but intercourse with a man that opens the womb. But in Christ's case, uh, he opened Mary's womb through childbirth, and that's so. That's a statement from Origen that basically the uh, Christ's birth was natural. Now we'll go to Tertullian. And what's interesting about Tertullian is uh, <clears throat> he, he says that Mary was a virgin, of course, in conception, and then stopped being a virgin at delivery because he recognized that Christ had opened Mary's womb. He says, indeed, she ought rather be called not a virgin than a virgin, becoming a mother at a leap, as it were, before she was a wife. And what must be said more on this point, since it was in this sense that the apostle declared that the Son of God was born not of a virgin, but of a woman. He, in that statement, recognized the condition of the opened womb which ensues in marriage. That's Tertullian on the flesh of Christ, chapter 23. Uh, in chapter one of that same document, he says, at all events, he who represented the flesh of Christ to be imaginary was equally able to pass off his nativity as a phantom, so that in the virgin's conception and pregnancy and childbearing, and then the whole course of her infant too would have to be regarded as putative. What do you, th this is, <clears throat> this is his way of 
responding to the Gnostics and the Docetists who had said that Christ had come into the world merely as a phantom. And he's criticizing anyone who had entertained the idea that Christ could pass through Mary's womb as a phantom. Hmm. What's interesting is that you get to the end of the fourth century and you practically have the Roman Catholics adopting that. So yes, he was incarnated and he truly took on flesh. Uh, and, and Mary was truly human, of course, and Christ became fully human. It's just that he passed through her womb as a phantom in some strange way. Mm. And here we have Tertullian rejecting that, saying, you know, that's actually a, a, a Gnostic position. It's not the Christian apostolic belief. So, um, but again, uh, let's see, uh, also from uh, chapter four of On the Flesh of Christ, he says, um, since therefore you do not reject the assumption of a body as impossible or as hazardous to the character of God, it remains for you to repudiate and censure it as unworthy of him. Come now, beginning from the nativity itself, declaim against the uncleanness of the generative elements within the womb, the filthy concretion of fluid and blood, of the growth of the flesh for nine months, long out of that out of that very mire. Describe the womb as it enlarges from day to day, heavy, troublesome, restless, even in sleep, changing in its feelings of dislike and desire. Inveigh now against the shame itself of a woman in travail, which, however, ought rather to be honored in consideration of that peril or to be held sacred in respect to the mystery of nature. So he's challenging, he's challenging the Gnostics to even speak against the shame of a woman in travail. And what he's doing is conceding that Mary had birth pangs, hmm. that, the, that the birth was perfectly natural. Now, now so people would write off and say, okay, Origen and Tertullian, at some points were known to subscribe to error and heresy. And so they said, well, they're not real. They don't really count. So, okay, well, let's go to Eusebius. He was from 260 to 340 AD. He attended the Council of Nicaea. And this is from his uh, demonstration of the gospel, book 10, chapter 8. This is written around 311 AD. So this is before the Council of Nicaea. He says, Jesus knew that his original union with our flesh and his birth of a woman that was a virgin was no worse experience than the suffering of death. While he speaks of his death, he also mentions his birth, saying to the father, quote, thou, my God and father, like a midwife, didst draw the body that thou, that had been prepared for me by the Holy Spirit from my travailing mother. So here Eusebius is actually referring to Jesus praying to his father, saying that he had drawn his body out of his travailing mother. In other words, conceding that Mary had birth pains. Mm. And therefore, if you have birth pains, it's because your physical virginity is being compromised. Okay. Right. So that's, this is Eusebius from, from before the Council of Nicaea. Now we have John Chrysostom, who is referring to the verses in Matthew about Jesus saying to, you know, who. Who is a mother, a brother, and a sister to me? Is anyone who does the will of my father is a mother, a brother, and a sister to me? And, and John Chrysostom is commenting on that verse. And he says, For behold, he has marked out a spacious road for us, and it is granted not to women only, but to men also to be of this rank, or rather of one yet far higher. For this makes one his mother much more than those pangs did, so that if that were a subject for blessing, much more this, in as much as it is also more real. Okay, so this is this is John Chrysostom 
from 349 to 407 AD, still holding to this idea that when he's commenting on, we become mothers and brothers and sisters of Christ by following him and doing, and doing God's will and believing in his words, uh, this makes one a mother much more than those pangs did. So he's saying we're more a mother to Christ than Mary's birth pains made her a mother to Christ. Hmm. So, so here we still have Mary in birth pain and therefore losing her physical virginity, which is a reminder that this, you, you want to know the constant teaching of the church? The constant teaching of the church was that Christ's birth was normal. Right. Now, so, and, and, and again, concession from Roman Catholic scholars and, and apologists that Ambrose had come up with a novelty, that Jerome had come up with a novelty, that, that Joseph had remained a virgin his whole life, criticizing the Proto-Evangelium of James, and, and, and also that, that Jerome, of course, was inconsistent. He originally believed that Mary's birth had been normal. Christ's birth had been normal by Mary, and didn't even he didn't even hesitate to say, "Well, why, why, of course, uh, we don't blush from that at all." And then later, it completely changes his tune because he'd been exposed to this new doctrine that was being taught in the later latter part of the fourth century that Jesus had passed through Mary's womb, leaving it untouched and therefore not compromising her physical virginity, preserving her virginity in partu. If you want to trace it earlier than the latter part of the fourth century, you're going to have to appeal to apocryphal documents that have no apostolic warrant whatsoever, and you're going to have to write off what the early writers were freely admitting about Mary is that she was not, her virginity was not preserved in childbirth. So the, the last thing I want to wrap up on today, and, uh, and we'll just call this a wrap, and we can continue with another episode because there's much more to be said. <laughs> Because I, I, I do think that we need to do a wrap-up on Mary, but I, I want to just address one thing, and then we can conclude this, this episode. But the woman in Revelation 12 is having labor pains, and there's just no two ways about it. The woman in Revelation 12 is travailing in labor to give birth. Now, we know that birth pains are a consequence of sin. Uh, you know, men have to uh, eat their bread by the sweat of their brow, and women have pain in giving birth to children. These are the consequences of the fall of man. So Roman Catholics tend to identify the woman of Revelation 12 as Mary. And so they struggle with this whole issue of the woman of Revela Revelation 12 is uh, travailing in childbirth. Because if she's travailing in childbirth, then she's then her virginity is being compromised, right, in, uh, in childbirth. So <clears throat> it's very interesting. There's um, Mary of Agrita, a 16th century uh, Spanish mystic, a counter-reformational Spanish mystic. Uh, in, uh, in, her, in her work, The Mystical City of God, Volume 1, she has a conversation with an apparition of Mary. And, you know, we talked about apparitions of Mary before, and... I think it's important to state first, Roman Catholics will always say that they don't get their doctrines from from apparitions of Mary. And yet I think you can prove that they actually do. But but beside that, here we have Mary of Agrita is struggling with this whole issue in Revelation 12. If, if the woman of Revelation 12 is Mary, why is she struggling in childbirth pain? 
And this is what the apparition of Mary said to her regarding what John had written in chapter 12 of Revelation. He does not say this because she was to give birth in bodily pain, for that is not possible in this divine parturition, but because it was to be a great sorrow for that mother to see that divine infant come forth from the secrecy of her virginal womb in order to suffer and die as a victim for the satisfaction of the sins of the world. The Most High had determined to exempt her from guilt, but not from the labors and sorrows corresponding to the reward which was prepared for her. Thus, the sorrows of, of this birth were not the effect of sin as they are in the descendants of Eve, but they were the effect of the intense and perfect love of the Most Holy Mother for her divine son. So here we have the solution, right? Is that uh, an apparition of Mary shows up in the 16th century to explain, okay, we've worked this out. <laughs> we, we, we can explain now. How is it that the woman of Revelation 12 could be Mary, and yet Mary is known not to have had labor pains? And the, the apparition of Mary says to Mary of Agrita, uh, the sorrows of this birth were not the effect of sin. And, and there's also the, you know, the appeal to the secrecy of a virginal womb because it's just not possible that she would lose that virginity in childbirth. It's just the, uh, the sorrows were the effect of her intense and perfect love for her son. Okay, now that would be an interesting answer. And we can dismiss it outright because it's from an apparition of Mary. and Those apparitions are demonic. But, um, but what's interesting about this is that when the doctrine, uh, when Pius Twelfth declared infallibly that Mary had been assumed body and soul into heaven, and, and we'll get to this in our next episode when we talk about the Assumption of Mary. He quoted from John of Damascus, and uh, John of Damascus from the 6th century, had written about the sword of sorrow in Luke 2.35. Remember we talked about that, where the early church thought that the sword of sorrow was, sword of sorrow was Mary stumbling into doubt and unbelief. So John uh, Pius Twelfth, when he was proclaiming the uh, infallible, allegedly infallible dogma of the Assumption of Mary, quotes John of Damascus and said, it, is, it was fitting that she who had seen her son upon the cross and who had thereby received into her heart the sword of sorrow, which she had escaped in the act of giving birth to him, should look upon him as he sits with the Father. So that's a... That's from Munificentissimus Deus, which is the uh, infallible proclamation by Pius XII on the Assumption of Mary. And he's quoting from John of Damascus, who says that Mary, the sword of sorrow that she received, she experienced at the cross, but had escaped in the act of giving birth to him. So here we have a Pope saying that Mary did not experience sorrow in the act of giving birth. But when the apparition of Mary was trying to explain how the woman of Revelation 12 can be travailing in birth, she said, oh, those are the, the sorrows of this birth were because of the intense and perfect love of Mary for her son. Well, we have an infallible proclamation from a Pope saying that Mary did not experience sorrow in the act of giving birth to him. And so here's the thing, is it if you, if you want just a summary on the, um, the doctrines 
the doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary. The early church did not embrace it, did not accept it. Even when Origen was willing to entertain the possibility that the brethren of Christ were from a prior marriage of Joseph, that uh, that he appealed to he appealed to apocryphal documents that are that are we we everybody acknowledges are not apostolic and have no apostolic weight at all, but he also agreed that Mary's womb was opened by Christ when he came forth, and so he does not hold to the uh, perpetual virginity of Mary. And what you find is that as a doctrine, it doesn't actually take root until the latter part of the fourth century. And it's just very interesting to see between 383 and 393, Jerome himself switched positions to arrive at the perpetual virginity of Mary to the point that he he eventually held that Mary Mary's virginity was preserved in partu. Even though 10 years earlier, he was so flippant about it that it didn't even bother him to acknowledge that there was blood and pain and sickness when Christ was born. And that is, he was willing to acknowledge that her virginity was not preserved in part two. And what's interesting about Jerome being willing to concede that, remember how he said, there's all these other church writers who agree with him? Notice that he didn't invoke Clement of Alexandria. Remember earlier in the podcast, we talked about Clement maintained that she had not experienced any, uh, that she had not lost her virginity in childbirth. And yet Juniper Carroll had to acknowledge that that's actually something from the uh, sixth century. It's a Latin adaptation. So we really don't know for sure that Clement believed that. If Jerome really wanted to find evidence for his position, he could have appealed to Clement of Alexandria. But that just shows that that Juniper Carroll was right to say that we really can't put our trust in that document from Clement of Alexandria because it was edited and modified in the 6th century. and We don't really know for sure that that is what Clement was expressing. If Jerome wanted to find proof of his of these doctrines, he could have appealed to Clement of Alexandria if Clement had actually believed it. But the fact that he actually omitted him shows that uh, Clement's work, Clement really did not hold to Mary's virginity in part two. In other words, the whole thing with Mary's perpetual virginity, it rests entirely on her ma- maintaining her virginity in part two. And the early church rejected that as a Gnostic uh, myth, did not, did not agree with it, and it, it didn't end up becoming... Um, it didn't end up becoming a legitimate argument for Mary's virginity in part two until the latter part of the fourth century. So again, once again, we find it's just a novelty of the latter part of the fourth century. So much of Roman Catholicism is. Protestants and evangelicals do not have to take Roman Catholic Marian dogma lying down. Do not grant to them those last 300 years. They can't prove it. And they're always trying to persuade you that they can go back earlier than Nicaea. The fact is they can't get back past the latter part of the fourth century. The whole religion is a novelty. It is not apostolic. And the early church actually believed what we believe about Mary and her brethren. Uh, I'm sorry, Mary and Jesus' brethren and the marriage of Joseph. That Mary and Joseph enjoyed a natural marriage after Christ was born and had other brothers and sisters. And that's why the scriptures refer 
to the brothers and sisters of Jesus. Right. Um, I, I, that's uh man, you, you really hit the nail on the head there. Um, brother Tim, and I know that you're pressed on time. Uh, so we're going to have to let you go, but I'm excited that we're going to get to do another episode from this because this is really, really good stuff. Uh, so I just want to say thank you again for, for coming on. Um, I, I know that you're enjoying this series as, as well as I am. And, uh, and by the way, Tim, uh, I don't know if you saw, but, uh, somebody commented that, uh, Semper Reformanda radio is their favorite podcast and they love it when you're on our show. So, uh, kudos to you. Did you, uh, did you actually see that? Yes, I did. I appreciate the sentiment and hopefully the series can live up to his expectations. Uh, I think it's, it's so important for us. As we've mentioned this ever since we did an episode on the sacrifice of the mass is that we do not appeal to the early church fathers in order to establish doctrine. We do it to show that the whole Roman Catholic house is just a house of cards and they cannot trace the origins of their religion back any earlier than the latter part of the fourth century. And I say plainly to Roman Catholics who say that I need to repent of my 16th century novelty and return to the apostolic church. I tell them that I can't leave the apostolic church and join them in their late 4th century novelty. I'm going to hold to what the early church believed and they need to repent and come back to it. Amen. Um, all right. So with that, we are going to let everybody go. Uh, we will we will be doing another part on this uh, regarding the Assumption of Mary. Looking forward to having uh, Brother Tim join us again. It's it's always a pleasure. So, Tim, uh, thank you for joining us um, today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to have you. Uh, to, it's been a pleasure to be on the show. So uh, we'll look forward to episode five next week. All right. With that, we're going to let everybody go. Looking for that perfect track for your next evangelism outreach? Look no further. At TrackedPlanet.com, we have solid biblical tracks that are a breeze to hand out. They are beautifully designed and are the highest quality tracks available. With over 80 different designs in stock and literally hundreds more available by custom order, we're sure to have just the right one for you. You can get any of our items printed with your church or ministry information or have us design a brand new track just for you. We are committed to the solid biblical message of law to the proud and grace to the humble. Each tract is firm on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the necessity of repentance and faith in salvation. Come check us out at TrackedPlanet.com and make sure you use coupon code BTWN at checkout for 10% off your entire order. That's T-R-A-C-T-Planet.com, coupon code BTWN.